You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for whole food, high quality, wildcrafted supplements, look at Ancestral Elements Supplements. I offer a liver and colostrum supplement as well as a wild bear clover tincture. With my background in food science, I'm able to personally formulate and create my own supplement line to ensure the integrity and quality of each product. In both supplements that I offer, none contain any fillers. They're strictly 100% food items, making them completely bioavailable and non-disruptive to the gut microbiome. For further information, go to AncestralElements.com and navigate to the supplements page. Now, here's the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 43, An Apple a Day Keeps the Microbiota Pathology at Bay. Since we are rapidly approaching the fall season, I wanted to do an ode to the apple. In this episode, though, I'm not going to talk about apples in the traditional way, as in the whole fruit. I'm actually going to talk about fermentation around the apple, because this is a perfect fruit to ferment, what we call hard cider. Apples are basically like little fermentation bombs. And what happens when they undergo fermentation, they actually increase the microorganism properties and feed your microbiome. And we're going to get into some nuances about that. So really, this episode is going to center around cider making, fermentation, and how that changes the properties and nutritional properties of the apple itself. And like always, I'm going to tie in a seasonal and environmental component into cider making and fermentation because it absolutely has a fall seasonality to it. And there's a reason why that's the case, not only for the apple, but there's a reason why we should be doing it for our nutrition in the fall. Okay, so apples. I'm going to give you kind of a brief little background on a history of growing apples and how they were traditionally grown and used throughout most of the world. So apples, from a fruit standpoint, are pretty fascinating in the fact that they have extreme heterozygosity, meaning if you want a gala apple or a red delicious, if you open one of those apples up, if you slice it longitudinally and take the seeds out, every one of those seeds is going to be a different type of apple tree if you planted it. You're not going to get a red delicious if you plant red delicious seeds. Every apple you get from the grocery store is a clone. It's a genetic clone. It's a graft in order to produce fruit that is a consistent shape and taste and color year after year. There's not many other fruits like that. Typically, if you plant a seed, you'll get something very close to the parent genetics. With apples, every single seed is different. So a pippin is an apple tree that started from seed. We all know the story of Johnny Appleseed and him going around planting seeds. His real name was John Chapman, and he believed that it was a sin to clone apple trees. He was a follower of Emanuel Swedenborg, who was a scientist and philosopher turned priest. And his teachings and writings kind of really focused on naturalistic elements and keeping of genetic lines basically unadulterated. So that's where John Chapman kind of got his appleseed philosophy. He didn't want people tampering with 
grafting and cloning of apples. And the thing to keep in mind in the late 1700s was apples and cider making was a huge, huge industry. It was gigantic in England beforehand, throughout the 15th century. And then as America got colonized, apples started being brought over and planted all over the East Coast. And largely, this was done by John Chapman. So you had these huge apple orchards that got established from Pippins, and you had a super diverse species of apple genetic coming out of there for cider making, for apple butter, for something called apple syrup, which is a cooked down kind of version, or apple molasses, you'll see it called sometimes. And so there was a big industry for this. And you had some people believing that they wanted to graft and keep consistency in the genetic apple line. And then you had people like Johnny Appleseed who wanted nothing but diversity. But if you're growing crops like that, most farmers want a consistent product. And that's what you see today. You see grafting at most nurseries. When you buy apple trees, most of those trees are grafted. So you can have a consistent product year after year. The wild apple tree actually comes out of the area now known as Kazakhstan. And the earliest writings of fermentation and of cider making were in that region. So from very, very early on, people were making fermented cider drinks out of this fruit. This has a really, really long history. And then as China started trading and trade routes opened up to Europe, apples became a very, very staple food for most of Europe and especially England. And traditionally, cider making was done with wild yeast fermentation. If you've ever looked in an apple tree and apples hanging on the tree, they have a white kind of coating to them a lot of the time. That's wild yeast. If you pick the apples and don't wash them and you crush them and get the juice out, then that wild yeast will be concentrated. And then you just seal that juice off and it starts to ferment. And then you build carbonation out of that wild yeast. Whereas when it's commercially done nowadays, they use all the same type of apple variety and then they add brewer's yeast to it. And brewer's yeast is a fungus called Saccharomyces. It's very homogenized in this day and age where it's a dry, inactive yeast, um, similar to what you would bake with, but it comes out of the fermentation process of beer making. There are known side effects for brewer's yeast in particular because it's been kind of so industrialized. A lot of times people can get migraine headaches from this particular strain of yeast. But with wild yeasts, there's way more diversity. You're getting many, many different types of yeasts. So there is a bit of a cult following towards using wild yeasts in brewing and especially in bread making with wild yeast sourdoughs and things like that, where you slowly ferment the bread, you have way more diversity. And, and with multiple strains of yeast, you actually get way more microbial diversity in the gut when you consume those types of foods and yeasts. So it can actually, you can get better enzymatic breakdown from not only a fermentation perspective, but, but microbially in your own gut. Now with anything kind of wild food-based, there's going to be extreme variability. So depending on where you are in the world or where you are in your own bioregion, yeasts are going to be way different and there can be contamination and 
everything else that goes along with that. So there's definitely some things to be cautious about and to understand that you're not working with a lab-grown bruise yeast that's very consistent. But wild yeasts are something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot in this day and age. It's not something we typically consume much of anymore because everything is washed from the grocery store. So even your organic apples are washed ahead of time. So none of that natural yeast is on there. And worse yet, a lot of times they're coated with wax, which is actually can be a microbiome disruptor because it's coated with parabens and other agents, sometimes beeswax. So unless we're going and getting apples off of an apple tree outside, we're not getting natural yeasts. And that goes for other fruits and vegetables as well. And it's easy to think about, you know, yeast overgrowths or yeast being a dangerous thing in the human diet, but it's something that is naturally occurring on the landscape and that we've been eating for literally millions of years. And so really, if it was that detrimental, we would have seen effects from that. The fact that we're not consuming those is more concerning than actually consuming them. As long as you don't have molds and pathogenic yeast in a fermentation process, you're going to be fine because of what that diversity of yeast gives you is not only a boost in your microorganism activity in your intestinal microbiome, it also feeds your appendix. So if you remember how I talked about the appendix being a storage tank for beneficial bacteria and microorganisms to repopulate the gut when you do have pathologies in there, things like diarrhea or any type of sickness where you lose microorganism diversity in the gut, your appendix needs diversity to be housed in there. So wild yeasts are a perfect solution for that. And the fact that we're getting yeast overgrowths and pathologies, it could easily be said that we don't have enough diversity in there to keep things regulated. And so what our appendix is actually feeding us could be potentially harmful because we don't have enough diversity. It could be harmful on the microbiome level for the intestines and for the appendix itself, which is why people get inflamed appendix and have to get them surgically removed a lot of the time. There was an interesting story about a cheesemaker who was making a cheese in an old French style out of, she was fermenting the milk and the curds in old oak barrels. And she'd been doing it for decades and decades. And then the FDA caught wind of it and went in to investigate. And they deemed it unsafe because the wood could potentially contain pathogenic bacterias and yeasts that would get into the cheese and make people sick. On further investigation, what they realized is since she had been using the same barrels in the fermentation process for cheese making, they actually contained so much beneficial bacteria and yeasts that they protected the fermentation process against those potentially negative pathogenic yeasts and bacteria. Whereas in a commercial cheese making process, they ferment in stainless steel vats. And what stainless steel does, yeah, you can keep it clean because it has a slippery, homogenous surface, unlike a wood barrel does. But you get very resistant bacteria that get housed in there because you're cleaning it so much, right? It's like antibiotic resistance in a sterile environment, such as a hospital. So there's a community kind of colonization aspect to yeasts, to bacteria naturally occurring in areas. 
you need the diversity to keep things regulated because they feed off of one another and there's crosstalk between all the multiple species. You want species diversity. You don't want robust, isolated strains because those are what become pathogenic. It's an ecosystem, just like everything else. It's just on a micro scale. So really, the diversity feeds your intestinal microbiome and it feeds the appendix and really does help substantially with the immune system. When they wean pigs off of nursing, they found that if you introduce wild yeasts into the pig's diet after weaning, their immune response gets much stronger. It builds immunity in young piglets. I'm not saying it's exactly the same crossover in humans, but it seems to be where things are leading. So really what I'm getting at is the more wild yeasts and wild types of fermentation that you can incorporate into your diet, most likely the better off your immune response and mycology and microorganisms of the gut is going to be. I mean, there's so much fear around bacteria and microorganisms still that is very pervasive in the culture that talking about this type of thing is usually a major turnoff for people. They get scared because they don't want to get sick. But really, we have it backwards because these things are what keep our systems regulated. They regulate our immunity. They regulate our organs. They're adaptive. And by cutting them out, we may stave off some short-term symptoms like diarrhea or some nausea occasionally. But what we're ultimately doing is we're decreasing our immune system and decreasing our survivability into the future and increasing things like autoimmunity, which is a huge factor in this day and age. And there's reasons for that. And what the latest research is saying is it's because our immune systems are chronically weak and it leads to chronic inflammation, which then triggers our own immune system to fight our own bodies, which is what autoimmunity is. So there's this whole dynamic piece that we're missing through all of this sterilization, through all this ability to decrease bacterias and fungi and yeasts in our diets in our guts, we've sterilized ourselves in a sense. Now, I'm generalizing and painting with big brushstrokes here, but if you think about it, it's kind of true because we're not getting wild yeasts and wild bacterias in our diets. We're eating treated food that's been treated with sprays, insecticides, fungicides, pesticides. All of that disrupts the microbiome. Obviously, there's safe ways to do wild fermentation. People, Like I said, people have been doing this for thousands of years, and no one's just dropping dead because of it. Wild fermentation is a legitimate way to feed the microorganisms of your gut. And apples are a perfect thing to do this with, because they have yeast all the way through every single cell. It's not just on the skin. Yes, there's more concentration on the skin, but it's through the core of the apple too. And through that breakdown of sugars that the yeast are feeding on to create the alcohol content, you're getting a surplus of microorganism diversity in there. In increasing things like B vitamins, you're increasing the fermentable fiber in there, an increase of lab bacteria or lactobacillus, which is the predominant bacterial species in our guts. And then you have pathways that open up, oxidation and reduction pathways, redox pathways, such as the NRF2 pathway, which is a primary antioxidant pathway in our bodies. NRF2, when that gets activated, it reduces 
markers for things like genetic aging and actually helps regulate inflammation and pathogenic factors that could prematurely age us. You also, from that NRF2 pathway, get enzymatic breakdown to butyrate, which butyrate is a potent antioxidant. So there's ramification, positive ramifications from all this, from getting diversity of species and then fermenting them. You can sometimes boost that nutritional load and make it easier for your body to process because you've already started metabolizing high sugar content, for example, that are found in apples. Generally speaking, anyway, there's a decent amount of sugar in apples. I mean, obviously, some apples are more sour and they have acids in there, but all that is a good positive attribute, especially for cider making and fermentation, is you get those nice acids that keep the right balance of bacterial growth and fermentation in that process. And that's why people like to use, at least old school cider fermenting, they like to use a bunch of different types of species and flavors of apples because it keeps things balanced and you get an influx of species diversity in a single vat of cider, which back to Johnny Appleseed, aka John Chapman, that was the reason for keeping so much diversity. Because in England, they started everything from seed. All their apple trees were started from seed, so they had tons of species diversity in their apple orchards, and they predominantly used their apples for cider making. So that was the traditional way it was done. And so by starting trees from seed, you get increased yeast activity, diversity, and it contains the fermentation a little bit better and makes it ultimately safer and better for you nutritionally. Now, if you don't like to drink alcohol, then apple cider vinegar contains pretty much the same exact things you'll find in cider. So basically, it's just a late stage fermentation. That's all vinegar is. And you can do wild vinegars, which is fantastic. And there's starting to be a little bit more of a following for wild vinegars too, which is amazing because it needs to be incorporated more in the diet. So if you don't like drinking alcohol, wild fermented vinegar making is a great way to do this. And you can do it very easily at home with a gallon jug and an airlock. You can quite easily make apple cider vinegar. Which, you know, apple cider vinegar, there's tons of uses. I mean, salad dressings, cookings, preparations, but also cleaning. And this is an interesting one because if you do a naturally fermented vinegar, then you're going to have bacterial species in there. And the cleaning of something like your countertops is going to be populated with that beneficial bacteria. And then you set a cutting board down or put an onion on top, right? You're going to be getting some minute transfer. Obviously, they don't live forever, but think about how sterile we keep our kitchens with bleach and ultra-harsh chemicals that kill all the species diversity, except the ones that can resist harsh chemicals. By cleaning with a natural product like apple cider vinegar, you can build in some resiliency, which is something to think about. Again, you're either fighting nature and natural processes, or you're working with it. And this is an area that you can work with it. I mean, this idea of ultra-pasteurization and ultra-sterilization does not benefit us. It harms our intestinal microbiota. And that's an issue because it eventually wreaks havoc on our immunity. So anything you can do to build in some bacterial resilience in your house, on your skin, 
inside your body, it's all going to be a little bit better. And it's going to put you on the right track and point you in the right direction. And this natural fermenting and making hard cider, you're not going to get a ton of alcohol content. You know, at best, if you're not adding any sugar, you're probably looking at 2 to 4% alcohol content by volume, which is less than a beer, you know? So if you're wanting to get kind of ripped off a hard cider that you're naturally fermenting without adding any sugar, good luck. It would take a lot. And it's more of a nutrient-dense product than it is an alcoholic product. And again, if you don't want any alcohol, then just turn it into vinegar. Not a problem. But it is a very nutrient-dense product. You know, it's a little bit more akin to something like a kombucha than it is a beer, which is pretty cool. You know, I'm really advocate for anything that is going to be a nutrient boost, alcohol or not. You know, and if you're going to be drinking alcohol, make it a little more nutritious. You know, just like you wouldn't try to get super drunk on kombucha, you know, it would be pretty hard to do that with a home fermentation on hard cider. There are ways to increase the alcohol content of hard cider. So people used to freeze it to separate the water content from the alcohol, and then they would take the top layer of alcohol basically off. They would siphon it off. That process of, it's called the freeze method, is a little dangerous because you get some inert alcohol production in there that can be very damaging to the organs. It's a little unreliable. The other process is a still, and people make a hard liquor out of the cider making process, which has been done for a long time. Apple Jack is uh, a common name for it. Um, yeah, pretty robust spirit, but uh, it was pretty popular. Not so much popular these days, but um, you could find it at maybe some specialty stores and stuff. I personally have never tried it, but um, there are ways to, I mean, obviously increase the alcohol content. But if you're doing a naturally fermented, you know, countertop fermentation, it's uh, going to be pretty low in alcohol, but also pretty nutrient dense because you get, again, varying yeasts, varying bacterias, and all that kind of feeds the microbiome. It's also important to note the seasonality of apples and cider making. I mean, it's a fall process. So as the nights get cooler, the sugars and the phytonutrients in the apples concentrate a little bit. And then when you start to process those, they get concentrated even further. Okay? Those acids and the sugars mix well and create a more nutrient-dense and stable product as far as fermentation goes. And what you're doing when you're building the gut microbiome in the fall is you're preparing it for the wintertime. So increasing your microorganisms in, in the fall inside your gut is very important if you're going to be eating seasonally throughout the winter because you're leaning in the winter, you're leaning towards higher protein meals typically, higher fat, and you're going to need excess bacteria in there to break down and to utilize those proteins and fats in an adequate way. So by increasing bacteria, yeast, fungi, protist inside your gut in the fall, you're priming yourself for your winter foods for things like game meats and root vegetables, right? All these highly fibrous foods, which inherently root vegetables are, right? Carrots, parsnips, turnips, right? Tons of fermentable fiber in there, but you need adequate microbial diversity to break that fiber down to create the butyrate that's going to create the antioxidant effect. If you don't have that, it's just going to sit 
in the small intestine and cause permeability and cause dysbiosis. So the more you can prime your microbiome in the fall, the better off you're going to be in the wintertime by far. Now, obviously, we can hack this nowadays because we have products all year round, right? Most of us aren't eating extremely seasonally, although it's better if we did. But there's a natural cadence to this because UVB, as it declines in the wintertime, it declines diversity on your skin as well, which hinders the diversity of your gut. So your microbiome naturally will kind of senesce. It will get lower in the wintertime due to lack of sun exposure on your skin. So your vitamin D levels start to drop. The microorganism diversity in the gut starts to drop. You need a ramp up of that microbiome to keep things regulated and to keep nutrients breaking down efficiently through the wintertime. And that's something that isn't really focused on a whole lot in nutrition. You know, seasonality in nutrition, primarily the focus is on nutrients inside the food. But really, there's an environmental component in seasonality that's just as important as the food itself. Because there's a reason why those foods are in season in that season. If you're interacting with a natural environment, your body is going to be primed for those foods that are actually in season. You see what I'm getting at? So in the winter months, since the arc of the sun is lower and it's farther away from the earth, your vitamin D, your UVB, and all of that biodiversity that happens on the layer of your skin and in your dermis and down into the intestinal microbiota hits almost a dormancy, just like plants do with photosynthesis in the wintertime. So by priming your microbiota in the end of summer, and in the beginning of fall, it sets you up to get you through the winter. And then when the springtime comes, you're back on the greens. You're back on more of the fermented foods. You can never separate food from the environment. The food is a product of the environment, just as you are. So the moment you make food just about the nutrients and what is actually contained in the food, you've missed the boat completely because it's the relationship with the food and the environment and how all of that interacts within you biologically. So with any type of fall food, the best thing you can really be looking for is a chance to increase pre and probiotic activity. And through fermentation, it makes that process a lot easier because you're pre-fermenting them and it's not a load on the gut. And if you want to quickly increase pre and probiotic activity, Something like a fermented cider is a fantastic tool for that job. And really, the old adage, an apple a day keeps a doctor away, isn't extremely accurate. Because if all you're doing is consuming cultivated apples, you're consuming genetically manipulated apples. Meaning, they're going to be selected for their size and their sugar content and the look of them more than they are for the nutrition. Now, if you're eating apples off your own apple tree or organically grown apples that you can go and pick, then you're going to be getting a very different product. You're going to be getting a product that is surrounded in yeast and bacteria and fungi that feed your microbiome. Those are pretty good to eat. If you have some microbiome sensitivities and metabolic sensitivities, something like IBS or Crohn's or whatever it may be, then a cider or a vinegar can be a great process because you're limiting the sugar when you ferment because the yeast is consuming that sugar and releasing carbon dioxide. And that can actually be a better precursor 
than the apple itself because it's a lot for the hind gut to ferment a fermentable fiber like that. It's a load on the gut. And if you can do it previously before you consume it, it can be easier to digest and to get it in if you're dealing with some type of metabolic disruption, which it's hard to really know how many people are dealing with metabolic disruption, but it's a large percentage of people, at least to some degree. And that's the reason why it's important to get these types of species in your diet. Get fungal species, get yeast species that are in your own bioregion that you can inoculate your gut with, and you're going to be a lot better off, metabolically speaking. And for fruits that are grown in the wild in a clean environment, don't wash them as much as you would think. I would argue don't wash them hardly at all. You could wipe, you know, debris off and things like that, but you want to leave the intact yeast molecules that gather on the skin. That's a huge nutritional component to not only the fruit itself, but the antioxidant profile that ends up being converted inside your gut. If those are lacking, then you're lacking a substantial amount of species diversity and nutrition in that food. You want to leave that stuff intact as you possibly can. I mean, you can picture 300 years ago, right? When people were eating wild fruits, they weren't washing them all the time. They were picking them off the tree and eating them. And that's something that still needs to be practiced. You know, obviously, if there's contaminant like bird poop on them or something, yeah, that's one thing. But if you're getting a clean fruit off of a tree or a vine or whatever it is, then eat it because you're going to be providing yourself with way more species diversity and nutrition than if you were to just wash it in chlorinated water or even well water for that matter. I mean, in this natural occurring yeast in the environment and natural occurring bacteria through a natural fermentation process, these are examples of how nutrition goes beyond what is just in food. You're making your nutrition and your food work for you and work with you instead of just trying to force macro and micronutrients into your body that either may not be ready to accept or it could just be bad timing on the seasonality front of it. And your body's not going to be able to process those as efficiently and it's going to be taxing on your overall immunity and biology. So knowing why you're eating something, knowing the why behind the food that you're putting in your mouth becomes very important. If you want to get to the real reason behind nutrition and what nutrition actually is, nutrition isn't just about the food and what molecules and carbohydrates and protein ratios are in the food. It's about the interaction with the environment where the food was grown, how you're interacting with that same environment, and what the food then does to your body to change your internal environment. It's really very simple, but it's not something we think about or go to very often. When we're looking at food labels, it's just total fat, total sugar, total carbohydrate, and then a long list of synthetic derived ingredient, right? Not that helpful. You need to start looking at this way more holistically than is being taught and is being talked about. So I guess my challenge to you is think about the types of microorganisms you're getting in your diet right now. Can you change things? Can you clean your countertops with apple cider vinegar instead of bleach? Can you switch to eating apples that you go pick personally off of organic farms or in your backyard? Can you get more micro yeasts and bacteria in your diet? Do you want to experiment with fermentation in your own home, right? These are natural things that you can do to actually increase and engage with your food and nutrition. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
happy fall, and I'll talk to you guys this next week. Get outside, eat good food. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, leave me a rating and review. This will ensure that people can find the podcast so that we can grow the audience, and it will help me secure guests for future episodes. If you have suggestions on what you want to hear on upcoming episodes, go to AncestralElements.com and leave me a comment. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and inputs and answer any questions that you may have.